That video of the hymn, And Can It Be, shows the congregation, a very large congregation, of um, the Church of South India, Chennai in India, and it was sent to me this past week by a, a friend. And it's good for us to remind ourselves, isn't it, that we're part of a global church, a part of a wider church, where people of different language and different cultural backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, nonetheless come together and worship the living God and give thanks for the wonders of his grace in Jesus Christ. Of course, this past year, we've been living in the light of a global pandemic. India itself has been badly affected by it. And we can hardly imagine, a year ago just now, it was a lovely morning like this. It was a lovely Sunday, a Sunday spring morning. And I've got the intimation sheet for Sunday, the 22nd of March, 2020, in front of me. And it has various details of the church being open at various times. It has um, a particular special service that we were called to a national call to prayer that Sunday. And there were some suggestions of various things that were going to happen in the coming weeks. Of course, little, as I've said in the past, did we know then that a year later we would still be under lockdown. Um, on that Monday evening after the 22nd, Monday the 23rd of March, the Prime Minister came on into the television and we went into our first national lockdown. And while we gather with the hope that the present lockdown is soon to end, at least not to end, but to be lifted a bit and to allow some degree of moving about, certainly for some people to start coming to the church from next Sunday, from Palm Sunday, nonetheless, even with the vaccines, there certainly isn't the prospect of everything returning to normal for some considerable time. I had to share that with some people on Friday at uh, one of our fellowship groups that was meeting on Zoom. I could see in the faces of some that there was a natural and understandable sense of, oh dear, and when I was asked when we thought we could be back to having tea after the service and folk milling about and being able to sing and everything, and I cannot say. It may even be next year before we finally are able to do that. We do not know. We live in still very uncertain times. And if you were hoping, as I was, that you'd be able to get a wee holiday, well, certainly the prospects of going abroad this year don't look very hopeful. And so, here we are. The same God that we prayed to last year, on Sunday the 22nd of March, is the God we come before this morning, this Sunday morning, the 21st of March. And we reflect on the uncertainty of the times in which we live. But as we've seen, as a hopefully we've looked at the story of Jesus' arrest and his, well, his betrayal and his arrest and tonight or this morning his trial, we'll discover that times in some ways haven't changed. The uncertainty of the times that we live in just now have often been the case. Certainly, as Jesus was arrested and he was taken before the Sanhedrin and then, as I say, we're going to see him before Pilate this morning, all that happened was considerably uncertain for the people at the time, for the disciples in particular, confused and wondering what tomorrow was going to bring. So let's hear God's word from Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Last Sunday, we saw from Mark's gospel, Jesus before the Sanhedrin and their response to his statement when he was asked, are you the Messiah? We see that at the end of Luke chapter 22. And the response is, of course, one of horror and rage. And so in the beginning of Luke chapter 23, we read this. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. 
And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, You brought this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charge against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, Why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Amen. And may God indeed bless to our hearts this reading of his word. As I say, there was a degree of uncertainty amongst at least some of the people who were involved in the events of the Thursday evening and the early hours of Good Friday morning. For all the scheming and planning of the Jewish leaders and their careless regard, as we saw the other Sunday, for the rules and restrictions under which they had operated, their judicial police, their religious police, were only allowed to operate within the confines of the temple, the temple courts. And yet they had gone out, they had got a, a mob, a crowd gathered round about them, they had arrested Jesus, and then, and were told in Luke's gospel that it was at daybreak the council of the elders met, in Mark's gospel the suggestion is that it's still night, that it certainly was the very early dawn. Strictly speaking, they shouldn't have met at night at all. They should only have met in broad daylight. But the deeds of darkness were done, certainly in the twilight zone. And that wasn't legal, but nonetheless, they did it. But nonetheless, it's very clear that for all their scheming and planning, they were limited in what they could do. They were limited partly because of their fear of the crowds, and as I say, partly because of their limited judicial authority. We read back in the events of Holy Week, 
that Jesus enters the temple courts. And Luke chapter 19 begins to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple. But the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. And so it was with relief and indeed a degree of excitement that when they found their way of being able to catch Jesus, they responded to it. At the beginning of Luke chapter 22, now the festival on leavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted, were told, and agreed to give him money, and he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. They'd had their plans. But for their plans to succeed, they needed to get rid of Jesus. They needed to kill Jesus and in some way dispose of him. But they couldn't do that. They had no power to do that. The only person who had power to do that was the Roman authorities and the Roman governor, Pilate. And so they had the recourse to him. And that's, of course, what we read they did. The whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. Now, of course, the whole relationship between the Roman rulers, the Jewish authorities, the Council of the Elders, the Sanhedrin, the common people, there was a complex dynamic there. As we have seen over this past year in our own country and in different countries over the world, the whole dynamic between people and those in power and those who have the ability to do things in power and all the rest of it, we've seen it in Scotland, we've seen it in the United Kingdom, it's a complex thing. Almost, almost a living orgasm where there's, where there's tensions and where there's possibilities for things to move about and to change. Well, that's the situation that existed in ancient Israel. We see that in the story. New relationships were formed. New circumstances that came about developed into ways that they couldn't possibly have imagined. We'll see in a few minutes. Herod and Pilate, who were enemies before this, became friends. How fluid was the situation? And it wasn't likely that the Jewish authorities went to Pilate. They despised the Roman rulers and despised Pilate as godless Gentiles. But any port in the storm. And they were so desperate, so blinded, so filled with fear that their own position was going to be undermined by this rebel rabbi that they were willing to sup with the enemy. And that's what they did. But even so, it wasn't a sure case that Pilate would respond. They come to Jesus and they come to Pilate and we read that they brought before Pilate things that they thought would cause Pilate to be on their side. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. Once again in this story, we've seen how truth is just given a spin, just given that slight you know, alteration that makes it sound something very different from what originally it was meant. Jesus, of course, spoke about rendering unto Caesar that which was Caesar, rendering unto God that which was God. He didn't oppose payment of taxes to Caesar, but nonetheless, just given a little spin, it could sound like that. 
Jesus did accept the recognition of him as the Messiah. He has just done so. They ask him, are you then the son of God? And Jesus replies at the end of Luke 22, you say that I am. And we spent time last week thinking and reflecting on some of the phrases connected with that. But yet, a king in an earthly sense, Jesus had made it clear that his kingdom was not of this world. But the Jewish authorities take what he says and just twist it. And again, we live in days when that happens all the time. Fake use. is fake use because there's probably an element of some truth to it and then it's completely given a different meaning and significance. Pilate is aware of that. He wasn't a stupid man. The province of Judea, where he was the governor, may not have been the, the center and the most significant part of the Roman Empire, but nonetheless it was part of the empire. Pilate was there, an appointee of Caesar, and he had to manage the delicate relationships between people and, as I said, between the various contending factions. He's not going to be easily persuaded. Are you the king of the Jews? And you have said so, Jesus replied. Notice, and we'll see this more next Sunday when we look more in detail to how Jesus speaks and deals with some of the situations. He puts the onus back on Pilate and Pilate doesn't want to have the responsibility. I find no basis for a charge against this man. The Jewish authorities try to stir it even more. He stirs up the people over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and comes all the way. And as soon as he hears Galilee, Pilate thinks, here's a way out. And hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, the kind of puppet ruler of the province of Galilee, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at this time. And later on, when he's returned to Pilate, and he makes it clear in the verses from verse 13, where he says, you brought this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and found no charges for your, no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and that, then release him. That should have been the end of the matter. The word of the Roman proconsul should have determined what took place. Roman justice was known for bringing in a degree of justice and order into what often was a chaotic, chaotic world. But you see, Pilate may not be a stupid man, but he wasn't a strong man. The ebb and flow, the factions, all of that round about him, it was to those factions that he bowed. The crowd stirred up, wanting the release of Barabbas. Pilate almost pleading with them to accept his comments and his recommendation. And yet we're told that at the end of it all, their shouts prevailed. And Pilate decided to grant their request. And he surrendered Jesus to their will. Pilate's failure was he didn't stand by what he knew was true. He allowed other people, the pressures round about him, 
the demands of the Jewish authorities and the shouts of the crowd to determine what happened to a man who judicially was innocent. And you know, my friends, that's a challenge. It's a challenge to our society and it's a challenge to our world. It only takes good men and women to remain silent, to keep their head down, to refuse to stand up and be counted for evil to run amok. And all over our contemporary world, we see the consequences of that. Various totalitarian regimes, and even the fragility of the fake news and the tensions within our own society. Pilate is a warning of what happens when ordinary people, sensible people, people who have got a head and a brain and able to think and make decisions for themselves, surrender their will to other things or other people. And as Christians called to do what Martin Luther said, here I stand and can do no other for Christians the call is not to fail but to stand for what is true and right. The failure of Pilate. But then look at what happens. He's sent to King Herod. Now, as we said, this is not the Herod right at the beginning of the gospel story, but it's still part of that family line. The Herod who was so frightened by the wise men that there was a king being born that he then carried out basically genocide on young babies and in toddlers in his region. This is not the, that Herod, Herod the Great, but it is part of that family line, a family line that was blighted with all sorts of immorality. Remember Salome demanding the head of John the Baptist at a dinner. And that whole family that were nominally Jewish were paid for by the Romans and were filled with, again, all sorts of inconsistencies. But we're told, the Gospel writer, Luke, the historian, keen to get the facts and to present the story, were told that Herod was pleased when he heard that Jesus was being sent to him, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He had been stirred, his interest had been provoked. And there is a suggestion through the whole story of Herod in the Gospels that there was that openness, that degree of interest. Later on in the book of Acts, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is called to come before one of Herod's successors. And we're told that Paul had almost persuaded, or rather the successor told Paul, that he was almost persuaded by what Paul had said about Jesus. There was a degree of openness. There was an intellectual interest. There was a desire for something new. There perhaps was an awareness of spirituality. We're told that Herod here wanted to see him perform a sign of some sort. All of that was there. And yet, presented with the chief priests and the demands, and with the silence of Jesus who refused to give him any answer or to play party games to entertain a despotic puppet king. Herod simply washes his hands and sends him back to Pilate. And even worse, we're told, 
that as they play games with Jesus, sending him back and forward, a bit like a, 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 ping, a ping pong ball and a ping pong table, they, who were enemies, become friends. If Pilate is the thinking man who doesn't stand by what he knows to be true, but allows himself to be ebbed and flowed by the demands round about him, Herod is typical of many within our society who likes to have his fancies for something a bit different met with, who has a spiritual, perhaps, awareness of the extraordinary, who's keen to dabble in perhaps various things to see if they somehow please. But ultimately, the superficial, ultimately, simply wants self-entertainment, and ultimately, is not really serious with grasping with the challenge of what it is to know the truth about God. And there are many within our society today like that who'll dip in and dip out, who'll look to be entertained by the church or by some other spiritual faith or organization. But ultimately, it's for self, self-entertainment, self-satisfaction and when they don't get the answers they want and notice it's the answers they want they simply move on to something else Pilate and Herod but throughout this story and as I say this will become clearer as we draw things together next Sunday when we look at John's account of what took place throughout this story there of course is one person who stands in the midst of all We've seen the disciples and their failure in the garden. You can read of Peter and his betrayal of Jesus in the forecourt of the palace or the government buildings where the Sanhedrin was meeting. We've seen of how the Jewish authorities and leaders were so set on their intentions, their plans, that they just couldn't see the truth that stood before them. But Jesus was there. He refused to pander to anyone. He stands in the midst, not answering Herod and giving very sparse answers to Pilate. As I say, next week we'll see a wee bit more about that. He doesn't try to defend himself. He doesn't plead to the crowd for their support. He doesn't try to play politics with the different people gathered round about him. And why is that? That's because he is clear as to what he is about. You see, the gospel writers are very sure about this, that as the Jewish authorities had their plans and their schemes, which was to do ill by Jesus, so Jesus knew what his purpose was. I must go to Jerusalem and there suffer many things and be betrayed and be crucified. Jesus knew who he was and what he was about. Despite the fact that fully man, he would have felt the whole tension and stress and pain and heart of everything that took place round about him. As son of man, he entered fully into the horror of all of that. As the son of God, his delight was to do his father's will. 
he is the one who stands in the midst. And in our world where there's all sorts of tensions and all sorts of politics and all sorts of weaknesses and frailties, in a world where many know what the truth is but allow others to determine how they should respond to it, in a world where many look for self-entertainment and self-satisfaction and when they get bored move on to something else, in a world where people appear to be standing up for what is right but have an agenda that leads to death and darkness, Jesus Christ stands. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Earlier on as we finish, Jesus meeting with the disciples and speaking about the challenge of what it was to follow him, said this, Luke 11 and 23. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. You see, my friends, there can be no middle ground. There can be no dipping in. There can be no playing about. There can be no private acknowledgement of truth, of who he is, and then a failure to allow that to be lived out and worked out in our life and in our living with Jesus. It's all or nothing. We're either part of the crowd, we either play games with them and we'll lose, we either try to privatize our faith and say, well, I know he's true, but well, in a contemporary world and the pressures of work and the circumstances I face, I just have to go with the flow. None of that, none of that washes with Jesus. It is his way or no way. His life or no life. His truth or no truth. And that's the Jesus who stood in Pilate's court. That's the Jesus who stood before Herod. That's the Jesus who heard the crowd baying for his death and asking for a criminal to be released. That's the Jesus who walked the way of Calvary and who today says to us and says to our world, so similar in so many ways to the world of the first century, come, leave your nets and follow me for I will make you fishers of me. That's the Jesus that we worship and adore this season as we enter into Holy Week and Easter. We're going to hear a song now. It's a song by Casting Crowns, a group, a music group, and it's a song of reflection and a response to Jesus. From next Sunday, our church will be open for worship for those within the congregation Obviously, people from the community can come in as well. But those from the congregation who really can't access Zoom 
our YouTube and therefore need to come and be actually at a service in order that they can access something. And so we're going back to basically what we had um, in December, the beginning of January, and from next Sunday, the church will be open. We are in theory allowed to be open to 50. We, we didn't operate at that for a number of reasons. And so there won't be anything like that number here. There'll be sort of 20 odd, but it means the door is open and those who are looking and seeking spiritual help at this time will also be able to come in and join with us. We also, as you know, from next Sunday evening, we'll be having communion down here in the church in the same way as we had um, before Christmas, our Advent communion with it all spaced out, with tables and everything done all very safely. Um, and a number of people, a lot of people already been in contact about that. If you're intending to come to communion, then I would ask you to contact me. If I don't hear, and you came last time, I'll chase you up by the end of the week. But if you want to contact me before that, then it just means that we can slot you in for a time. Many of you have already asked to come basically the same day as you did last time, which is fine. Um, it makes it a lot easier. But it will be spaced out. It'll be safe. Can I encourage you? This is an opportunity, especially for those of us who have held back for various reasons, as I said, for good, bad, and different reasons over the last year, to see this as an opportunity to reintegrate, at least the beginning of reintegrating into the worshipping life of the church. We are not going to be back to normal for a long time. That's a year now. And really, we need to make a stand. We need to move forward. And we need to begin in some kind of way to reassociate. I know Zoom's on and all the rest of it, but it's not the same as the meeting together with other believers. And so I commend these opportunities, communion, the small groups, the church being open on a Tuesday, on a Wednesday evening, or restart on a Thursday morning, the church being open at different times. Take these opportunities, please, for your own spiritual well-being. Because the longer it goes on, and the longer you're not able to access these things, it will have and already has had a detrimental effect on your spiritual health. And I ask you, please, to take this opportunity as it's offered. Let's pray together. God, our Father, that song certainly I think very movingly picks up the theme of who you have sent in Jesus Christ, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The one who stood before Pilate and the crowd and Herod. Who stood before Pilate and you, that Pilate recognized him in a judicial sense as being innocent and yet was too weak to stand by what he knew was true who stood before a man, Herod, whose family was a testimony to the waywardness of the morality of the age and the circumstances in which we live, tossed about by every wind and wave, in many ways fundamentally empty, and looking for something to fill that emptiness and dabbling in this and that and the other, but also very self-centered. And unless Herod, unless many get what they think they need, then they just leave it aside and move on to something else. And we'll see next Sunday, Lord, how the crowd and all the things that flowed from that 
just so powerfully reveal the waywardness and the fragility and the fallenness of humanity. And we are human, and we can identify with all of that. And yet, Lord Jesus, we see you standing in the midst. In Pilate's hall, in Herod's palace, before that baying crowd. And your silence speaks of your majesty, of your humility, of your obedience to your Father's will, of your love for your people. And as we see you standing there, with the eyes of faith, we bow the knee. And like Thomas of old, later on after the resurrection, we say, my Lord and my God. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And so by your Spirit, enable us in these challenging days. And Lord, there are many other issues, moral and ethical and spiritual, going to be working out within our society in the months and years that lie ahead. In these challenging days, guard us against Pilate's privatized view of knowing what is right but failing to stand by it. Guard us against Herod's tendency to dip in and then to move on to something else. Guard us from being like the baying crowd, easily stirred by emotions, but like sheep without a shepherd. We acknowledge you as the very truth. And therefore we stand on your precepts. We acknowledge you as the only way to a relationship with the eternal God. And therefore we're clear that all other suggested ways are ways not to you, but away from you. And we rejoice that in you there is life. Life as it was meant to be lived, and life not just for here, but hereafter. We pray, O oh God, for those perhaps known to us who are continuing to be troubled. Yes, the vaccine has come, and, and, and there is encouragements from that, and we, we don't want to take anything away from that. But Lord, there are plenty, plenty other things that can fill us with concerns for family members, for friends, for neighbours, for those who are like sheep without a shepherd, those who wander, those who dabble, those who taste, those who know but refuse to allow that knowledge to impact on who they are. We gather before you in the quietness. Those people, those friends, those family members, we yearn that by your spirit their eyes would be open. They would come in faith. They would repent of their waywardness. And they would seek you, Lord Jesus.
And we thank you for that promise that those who ask will receive, those who seek will find, and those who knock, the very door of heaven will be opened to them. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship and companionship of the Holy Spirit rest upon us and journey with us this day and forevermore. Amen.